in the last two years with the trade wars and then with COVID-19, it's really starting to happen. People are seriously considering moving back to the United States and now. And some sectors have to do it. Can you give us an example? This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff, here with my co-host Lloyd Graff. On today's show, we're talking about manufacturing returning to the United States from overseas. Our guest is Mike Micklewright, director of the Kaizen Institute. Mike says we may have finally reached a tipping point when manufacturers accept that it makes sense to produce goods again in North America. As a used machine tool dealer specializing in high production equipment, I've encountered plenty of fire damaged machines. An average fire costs a business $300,000 to $500,000 and six to eight weeks of lost production time. Installed on over 15,000 CNC machines, FireTrace protects shops running oil-based coolants by automatically detecting and suppressing fires within seconds. FireTrace systems are safe for people and machines because they use clean agents that leave no residue. The systems are compatible with all major machinery brands and can be installed within a few hours. For more details, go to www.firetrace.com slash swarfcast. That's www.firetrace.com slash swarfcast. I am super happy to have Mike Micklewright, Senior Director and Consultant at the Kaizen Institute, Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you very much. And I'm I'm also happy to be with my favorite co-host, Lloyd. Uh, today we're really excited. We're gonna we're gonna talk about onshoring. It's been pretty much at the forefront lately, particularly during COVID nineteen crisis. So, Mike, before we go any further, just give me like a brief background. You know exactly what you do at the Kaizen Institute, and then then we're gonna try to understand this topic a little better. All right. Sounds good. Uh, what I do at the Kaizen Institute, well, I, as you mentioned, I'm the senior director, but I'm also doing a lot of uh, consulting with uh, many different organizations. And that's the thing about Kaizen is uh, continuous improvement, right? It's uh, And that applies to any company that has processes and every company has processes. So um, so we're, we're working with organizations. And, and basically what we do is we, we work to transform organizations, uh, a, tr- a true transformation uh, throughout the entire organization. The idea of getting rid of waste in their in their processes, yeah, ridding the organization of waste, but also building a culture of continuous improvement so that the whole company and all the individuals within the company have systems in place, have communication systems in place, have leadership systems in place uh, to continuously get rid of waste mm. and, and improve and move on. So that's what we do. Uh, I direct other consultants within the United States, but I also work directly with a number of different clients myself. So that's it in a nutshell. Very good. Tell me, have you found a lot of waste at the Kaizen Institute? <laughs> that is a well, good question. Uh, of course, of course, we have waste. Uh, everyone does, but I mean, a big part of the uh, improvement process is to, is like step one: admitting that you have a problem, <laughs> admitting that you have waste. <laughs> we all have waste, but we also are constantly working on getting rid of waste within the organization. Uh, if we talk about daily kaizen and having huddle meetings and continuous improvement cycles and and projects and so forth, uh, that's what we do too as well. So we try, but like every company. 
the company's full of humans. And so new things creep up and we run into the same issues that other organizations run into too. And it's that constant uh, involvement. If, if we said ever we are the perfect company, then uh, that means that we're imperfect by the very nature of the term. <laughs> Good answer. Okay, so onshoring. Let's just start at the beginning. What is onshoring? What are they talking about? What are they talking about? Well, there are, there's, yeah, there's, uh, it, it's, it's bringing production back, let's say, to, to your home operations, your, your, where you live. It's, it's, bringing, it's bringing back the industrial base, the manufacturing base uh, to uh, the closest spot to the consumer. So in other words, uh, the idea would be, you know, we don't want to ideally uh, build products overseas somewhere in, in, in another country and then bring them over here and ship them all the way over here to be used by consumers here. Why? Because it's riddled with waste. There's all kinds of waste. I mean, just the, the transportation alone is extremely costly. And so the, the thought process is, well, h- how do we how do we bring back production? How do we how can we do that uh, and, and, and to make sure that it makes sense? Because uh, a lot of organizations, of course, they, they'll go to another country like China or they have been going to countries like China for decades. Um, and, and, and because they look at the cost, just the piece part cost, the, the price of the item that they're buying. And that's all they look at. They don't look at the total cost. And when you look at total cost, you see that the savings is not as great. Uh, it's not uh, nearly as great as, as one would think. So the idea of onshoring is, is can you bring back some of the production, some of the manufacturing operations uh, to the place where the consumers are so that you are minimizing the overall distance and the overall waste in the, in the supply chain? Hmm. Okay. Let's take it for instance. And if you don't want to name a company, that's fine. But let's just pick a name out of the blue. Let's say Black & Decker, Stanley Black & Decker. And um, they're making components for the DeWalt saw in China now. And the purchasing agents look at their costs and they say, you know, this item, several of these components are 30% uh, cheaper in China vis-a-vis what we think we can make them for in Fayetteville, North Carolina. What do you tell them? What do you tell them when they are considering this idea of reshoring, yet the purchasing people say, are you nuts? Why should we raise our costs 30% by making it in North Carolina? Yeah. Well, you know, it's a good question because, uh, first of all, purchasing folks, oftentimes there's a metric called purchasing price variance or PPV, uh, and they're evaluated on that. Uh, it's an evaluation criteria. So my own evaluation, the amount of money that I make is, is based on, on the purchase price variance, which is, which is the standard price uh, or, or the actual price minus the standard price. So standard price might be the price from last year or what we paid for it last year. Now, the actual price is... Uh, is we're going to try to get it much lower uh, by uh, offshoring, and and so they they do that, and all they're looking at is that purchase price variance, which is just a cost item. Uh, they don't look about anything else. They don't look at the cost of transportation. They don't look at the, the risk cost. Uh, so that when you have things like a, a longshoreman strike that comes up or a tsunami that comes up or COVID-19 that comes up, when any of these types of things come up, we don't consider that as a cost. We just assume that that's zero dollars, which is a false assumption. It's a bad assumption. 
Um, we should be looking at all costs involved. And, and these are just some examples. Uh, what about the cost of sending engineers back and forth, the cost of, of, of getting on late night phone calls, uh, trying to figure things out and something that should be figured out in a day has to take a week now to, to figure it out. There's costs that are just inherent uh, in, in all of this. So what do you do? Well, first of all, you get rid of the metric. You, you can't have a metric which only looks at one, one cost. You wanted something based on low cost, that's what you're going to get. But all these are going to add up uh, immensely. And, and so, number one is you got to get rid of that. Now, any top manager, leader in the organization should see this. They should see that the entire cost, they look at the entire balance sheet. Uh, they should know that it's not just one little item that matters, but it's the entire cost of the entire operations. And so I don't think it's hard to convince top management. They just don't know how to do it. They, they, they don't know how to do it. They don't know what the tool is. And so there's tools out there that you can use, like total cost of ownership, that you can use to look at all the different costs that are involved. Okay. Um, and, and that's what we should be doing. The, the worst thing about things is that is that when you look at something like uh, uh, IP risk or, or, uh, or you don't even consider things like premium freight when there is a problem and, and you don't know how to quantify it, we tend not to quantify it. We just say, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to quantify it. So therefore, I'm going to ignore it. Well, by ignoring it, you're basically saying it costs zero. And that's a terrible assumption. Uh, what we'd rather do, what I'd rather do is say, let's make an assumption. Let's assume that it's 2% of the overall cost is, is, is risk, IP risk, or it's, it's uh, the cost of extra transportation, premium transportation, or whatever it might be. Um, let's make that assumption, and then we'll argue about that numbers, but don't just ignore it. Ignoring it is the worst thing, and that's what we tend to do today. So I think top management can, can easily relate to the idea of total cost of ownership and the total price, but they just have to be given that tool, and they have to see how. They have to understand how. I think that's, that's a big part of it. Just giving them the right data and facts doesn't always convince people. Do you have a way of appealing to their emotion? Perhaps COVID-19 gives people a little bit more feeling, you know? Yeah, well, sure. You know, on top of that, of course, before we've had the trade war that's been going on for almost two years now uh, that squeezed the, the gap of any kind of cost advantage that a, a China might have had with the United States. So that's even uh, more so. But you're absolutely right with re things like COVID-19 uh, and some of the other issues that have happened. It is uh, extremely uh, risky. And, 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 and in today's world, there is much more focus on risk than ever before, uh, I believe. Um, hmm. And we've seen, I mean, if you look at things like even the ISO 9001 standards, all the standards that are related to ISO 9001, there's so much more focus on risk and risk management. And when you do risk and risk management, you're trying to predict things that could happen, uh, such as this, so, such as something like COVID-19 and, and, and any other types of things that can happen. But what COVID-19 did prove to us and showed to so many industries is how uh, reliant, not just for medical products, not just for the medical products that we need right now, but for all products. And it shows you how reliant we are on other countries. And when something like this happened, when you become so reliant on other countries uh, to provide what you need to survive, there is a true cost to that. And I think that that, okay, forget about the cost. <laughs> There's a true emotion. <laughs> right. The emotion. There's a fear of losing jobs and or losing the company. And, and we can't do that. You know, if you go back to and look at what happened in, in Japan uh, years ago, and when Japan started to make the transition and started to overtake the United States in textiles and automotive and so on and so forth. 
so much of their philosophy was based on different principles. And one of the principles was self-reliance. Hmm. And they always believed in self-reliance. And, and, and even after World War II, they could have gotten money. Toyota bombed out factories, bombed out plants. Uh, they could have gotten money from the U.S. government, from the Japanese government. And they said, no, we, we don't want that. We don't want to be self-reliant. What we need to do is to shorten that time period from, from the time that we sell a car to the time that we pay people, pay our suppliers for the materials that went into the car. We need to keep shortening that time. We need to constantly shorten that. And that way it, it stirs on our cash flow and we have good cash flow. Okay, But we do not need to borrow from the government, the U.S. government or the Japanese government. That's one key lesson is self-reliance. And we have given up in so many industries self-reliance for the short-term dollar. And self-reliance is, is very important. Japan taught us these lessons. I mean, even when they came over to build automobiles in the United States, um, they made sure that suppliers were located near them so that you still had that control, that self-reliance. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. Are we ready? Are we ready to bring all the work back? No, we're not. We've lost a lot of our manufacturing base. I think it was like something like, uh, what was the number? I, you know, I want to say somewhere around 20% of our employees were manufacturing based in the around 1970, something like that. Uh, and now it's down to like uh, 9% or something like that. So we've lost uh, skills. We've lost uh, uh, some knowledge. We've lost interest. Um, so companies who have tried to reshore have had a difficult time. Now, they've done other things, of course. We're always adaptable <laughs> in, the, in, the, in North America. We're very adaptable. Um, but uh, so there's other things, and, and uh, such as uh, uh, robots and cobots, which are like collaborative robots that right. work with a human being. But so there are things that we can do to lessen the uh, on uh, other factors and bring back more and more manufacturing. But I do see things that are happening with the universities, more collaboration. There's things that we can do, good training programs that we can do and use in the lean world, in the Kaizen world, uh, that does help to build up those skills. But, uh, but no, that is, that is a problem. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, when we make comparisons between, between the cost of product in China and the cost of product in the United States, we're looking at present day situations, but when you onshore and you bring your suppliers close to you, there's a lot of things that we can do to take advantage of that, uh, like uh, like the, the, the concept of, of, of running milk runs, milk runs between um, uh, the customer and the supplier base. 
so that you're you're constantly picking up product more often in smaller quantities. What? Milk runs. Yeah, kind of like the the, the idea of a, of a of a of a metro line. If you if you think about a metro line, so let's say you have you have a uh, your company, okay, and you have uh, three suppliers, okay. There's three different suppliers, okay. Instead of a truck going back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth uh, once a week to a, uh, a supplier A and back and forth to supplier B and supplier C and so forth, a milk run is more like a metro line where I have my truck going to supplier A and I pick up a small amount a third, one third of the inventory or whatever it is, a third of a full truck. And then I go to supplier B and then I go to supplier C and so forth. And what you're doing is you're cutting out transportation. You're cutting out mileage. You're also uh, reducing the amount of inventory that you bring into the facility. You're bringing in more often in smaller quantities. That makes it easier to do. That makes the logistics systems a lot easier to control. And you can save money, additional money, beyond all the things that we're talking about with all the other costing and prices that go into making a sourcing decision. This is additional things that you can take advantage of when you bring your suppliers closer to your manufacturing base. Mike. Yes. Let's move the topic away from China and take it to Mexico. Do you consider Mexico... From a logistics point of view, part of America now, part of the United States, or even with the free trade agreement, is Mexico still, would you say, a problem as far as onshoring is concerned? Interesting. Yes and no. I mean, it's it's. I think it's a it's a matter of degree. It's it's less. It's less of a problem. But you still have things like, of course, customs uh, that you have to get through. You still have other things that could, uh, political strife and so forth that could happen between two countries. The cultures are a bit more similar. The transportation is a lot less, obviously, and your supplier base is closer, of course. So it's, uh, you know, there's a term, <laughs> another term that's used uh, quite often. For Mexico, and that's nearshoring. Nearshoring. So, hmm. if you're getting components from from Asia today, uh, and you bring them back home, that's onshoring. But if you bring them back to Mexico to be built there, then it's nearshoring. And and so that's what we've seen a lot actually occurring is nearshoring. So as the wages in China have been going up drastically since 2001, since China entered the World Trade Organization, uh, since since that has happened. And since the trade wars in the last two years ha have occurred, we don't see yet a lot of onshoring occurring. We do see more nearshoring occurring. And we, uh, the United States is purchasing more from places like Mexico or other Asian countries. Do you have many people in Mexico calling for your services? Well, we have the Kaizen Institute in Mexico. Kaizen Institute itself is all over the world. And, and so we, we work with our counterparts in Mexico on, uh, with certain uh, customers. What do you see in Mexico? I really don't know what it's like manufacturing in Mexico as a supplier, not as an owned company, but as a supplier. Hmm. I don't follow your question. I mean So I am a Mexican company. Let's say I'm a job shop and I'm in Corretero. What... Uh, are the obstacles that I'm dealing with in dealing with American companies that have a significant uh, stake in this area? Hmm. I don't know. In, in your example, um, 
I've worked almost in that area, but I'm, I have gone down to Mexico to work with some of our clients, and I've also made some uh, presentations in in Mexico. And you know, I I think that you know their concern. If I go back a couple of years again, was I mean they were really concerned about uh, what was going to happen with working with the United States. Uh, everything was up in the air at the point at that point in time. We seem to work well with them. There's a, it's an excellent workforce. It's very dedicated. But I, I think that things have, have as far as uh, trade relations, have, have stabilized between the two countries. Have you heard many of your clients discuss issues that they have dealing with the tremendous violence and uh, the cartels? We just listened to a book called American Dirt, which is a bestseller here, talking about the power of the cartels in Mexico Mm. and Mm -hmm. how they're almost omnipresent uh, and uh, the fear that they spread in the country. Is this a factor? Is this a part of the waste factor that people in Mexico are constantly dealing with? Well, it absolutely can be. And it is it is uh, some risks we could potentially run into. I have not seen that myself. I uh, uh, yeah, the cartels uh, obviously create a lot of havoc, but I don't know if they're really creating the havoc in the industries that we're working in, at least uh, for now. I, I guess I, I just haven't seen any any um, effect yet or I haven't heard of any effect yet um, uh, in, in industry and, and how that's affected them. You know, part of what you're asking, I think, is when you're looking at the total cost of ownership and you're, you're trying to figure in some of these costs, you're trying to quantify some of these things, uh, has the risk factor gone up and therefore the costs go, go up? And, and yes, they should have. Uh, with the cartel having more and more exposure and more influence on government and industry, that risk factor should be bumped up again. And so that should influence, however slightly, should influence a decision, a sourcing decision. What's the time frame? For everything with the onshoring, how how fast is it happening? Do you have any any predictions? One of the uh, uh, surveys that I was doing some research on, reading about, was uh, from Thomas Thomas survey. It was April of this year, and uh, it was from almost 900 North American manufacturing industrial professionals. And in there, it said, right now, well, in April, 64% of the companies of those people. Uh, that were interviewed across those sectors are likely to bring manufacturing production sourcing back to North America. That's a huge number, and that might be a knee-jerk reaction right now. Okay, so first of all, as I said earlier, you have 20 years of Chinese wages going up, and United States companies considering and reconsidering their sourcing decisions and and, and how they made And there's been some instances of reshoring during that 20 years because they realize that, oh, the benefits that we're expecting to get out of this by buying from China or wherever, they're not being realized. We've got all too many other costs. Okay, so that was going on for 20 years. And then in the last two years with the trade wars and then with COVID-19, it's really starting to happen. People are seriously considering moving back to the United States and now. And some sectors have to do it. Can you give us an example? Companies really moving stuff back from China to the United States. I, I cannot give you an example right now, no. Is that because it's confidential information or because you don't know of an example? I don't know of too many, but I do know of uh, a couple of instances. Um, and I, I, yeah, there's nothing I can say about that, yeah. It's what I have difficulty with. I've been hearing this for so long. <laughs> 
I've been hearing this onshoring, reshoring, at least for 10 or 15 years. Yeah. And I've seen remarkably little. Now, anecdotally, in our machine tool business, we are hearing more and more about it. But what we're hearing is they've asked me to quote against China. Mm -hmm. They've asked me to quote against China, and I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And, and that's where we're at. Are we at a pivotal point or is this just a continuation of where we've been for the last 10 years? Uh, you know, yeah. anecdotal yeah. information, uh, companies double checking their costs, but then they actually don't do anything. Yeah. No, it's a good question. And, and, I, and uh, I've heard it for years, too. Uh, is this like a tipping point? Uh, I, I <laughs> who knows for sure? it's got a good shot at being a tipping point. With these two things happening back to back, absolutely. I think this could be it. The two things being COVID-19 and... And the trade war. And the trade war. Oh, uh, yeah. Now, and, and all I was saying from our business, from our, from our point of view, uh, and what we do is that uh, in addition to those two things, if you do it right and you lay out your logistics the right way, save more money and be and, and not just money, but have higher quality and so forth. All of those things makes so much more common sense. You're saying, Lloyd, is this, you know, I mean, is it going to happen? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I do think that there's happening and, and things starting to change, you know, but, but, but the other thing that I want to say is that it's not just how you purchase, but it's also who's selling. So what we need to also do is to get our, to understand things like total cost of ownership so that when they're asked for a proposal, they're not just giving a price tag. They're going to say, here, here's a price tag. We can make an assumption. Price tag in an Asian country is 25% less. Let's go ahead and make that assumption. Now, if you're selling your products and you're trying to get in the door, you're foot in the door with a U.S. manufacturer, show them the total cost. Show them what the potential is. They're not going to argue with you because they've seen it. Well, if they've done this before, they've seen it before. And so it's not just using the tools like total cost of ownership to buy, but it's to sell and to convince people that there's greater cost and show them the numbers. Why does Hawaii and the 5G issue seem to be the crucial issue uh, that will possibly send reshoring one way or the other? I think this is where we edit. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know if I, if I could answer that one. <laughs> you don't know if you can answer it because of classified information or just because? No, not having the information, not, not, have, not, no, not having enough knowledge on the topic. That's fair. That's fair. And I also respect your answer regarding the reshoring and how we've been talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. But there has not yet been a tipping point, but perhaps maybe 2020 is the tipping point, but we still don't really know. No, we don't. We just know that there's a lot of interest. We know there's a lot of interest, probably more so than ever before. And um, one way or the other, it's hitting the news. I mean, it's hitting the yeah. it's hitting network news. You know, it's not just hitting business news. And hopefully that is the, the tipping point. But, I, you know, I, I think it's I think it's up to you know us, people like us, to get the word out there too, and to show people how to do this and and what they have to consider and 
how to sell from a total cost standpoint, how to buy from a total cost standpoint, how to improve uh, logistics and things like that. I mean, there's just so much potential. It's so damn easy. It's just so damn easy what we've been doing for decades, just just making stupid decisions over and over again based on, on the lowest price that you get yeah. when you get three quotes. Isn't it so awfully hard? But in the end, it's hard. Yeah. To make the shift and and physically... We're talking about potentially building new factories in America with all the hazards that are involved there. That yeah. isn't an easy game either. No, it, it isn't. But I mean, yeah, if you if you stick to the, the you know, the, the from a purist standpoint, from a lean standpoint, whatever, it, it, it's just, you know, so much of all of this is just about we've got to get rid of the waste in the supply chain. It comes down to something that simple, yeah. that simple. And every single person who has done a startup overseas to build overseas just to bring, bring product back to the United States, they see those costs. And, and yet we, we, we continue to do it. And, and yeah, there's, there's a lot of root causes to that. Mike, what's the most interesting thing you learned in the last week? <laughs> oh, my God. What is the most interesting thing that I learned? Or a interesting thing. Uh, Sounds like you've learned a lot of interesting things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I got one boy. You, you put me on the spot here and, and uh, well, what oh did you, gosh, what just, did you expect on Swarfcast? I mean, I just, yeah, I just, I just put two and two together. I right? talk about total cost of ownership, right? We just bought, you know, one of the biggest things uh, that, that people are doing this summer because of the whole COVID thing is uh, RVs are going through the roof. So we, we just bought a 92 Winnebago. Cool. We're going to go on a two-week trip. So right before this call, I told you uh, we have a uh, an inspector uh, who's inspecting the RV that we bought. And we bought it at a good price, and uh, and I think that he would agree with that. Uh, and we got, like I said, we got, we got it at a good price instead of renting one. And we thought if we rented one, we're going to pay half the amount just to buy this one. And maybe at the end of the summer, we'll sell it. And we could sell it. We might sell it. But you talk about total cost of ownership, and so we just paid the inspector another four hundred thirty bucks. <laughs> uh, there's some things to fix. That's going to add up to some hundreds of dollars. Uh, we had an engine repair uh, a mechanic working on the engine. Got some new brakes. So did you calculate this? Did you calculate this using your own uh... formula? Yeah. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I figured if you bought a 1992 one, this would have been totally calculated, like to the penny. You know what? In hindsight, that's what we should have done. And 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 so, but what it does though is, you know, what it does is that, you know, I, I'm a human being. I make mistakes, and our natural inclination is to look at things like just price. Now, this is a one-time buy. It's not like I'm going to be buying RVs every single week. Mm. Uh, but it does show you that our natural inclination is to look at price tag, and we all do that, even in our own homes. I do it. We all do it. Uh, mm. We don't look at total cost. But when you're in the business world and you're buying components and parts in the thousands and the millions, you got to. You got to look at that. You cannot make purchasing decisions like we do in the business world, like we do in our personal lives. And that's what we do. So I bet you didn't think that I would say all of this when you asked me, what did I learn in last week? <laughs> no, I mean, I had no idea. I, maybe I thought you were going to have learned that Michael Caine's last name was... Mickle White. No, I. But you knew that. <laughs> I already knew that. One, yes. 
<laughs> well, I, I think that's a perfect a perfect way to sum it up. And I really thank you so much, Mike. It was it was a lot of fun, and I learned some things. May things go the way that it seems like you feel they're going. I hope so. Yes. Well, thank you for your time. From today's machining world, this is a Swarfcast production. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to see extended video interviews and join our mailing list. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our audio engineer is Bill Steffi. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information on todaysmachiningworld.com.